This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode... We speak to Dr. Magdalena J. Fossey about polyamory. Polyamory is a complex experience. It's not one emotion, but many. We talk about the future of dating, jealousy, and why people become polyamorous at all. It's tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. I haven't heard anyone so far say, I'm interested in more love in my life, so I want to open up our relationship. What prompts most people in my experience is a desire to be involved sexually with more than one person. Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. Each week we try and give you the sex education you never got from school and today in class we'll be covering polyamory, otherwise known as non-monogamy, with our wonderful interviewee Magdalena J. Fossey. The thing is, in today's lesson there's lots of technical terms that we need to get up to speed with before we go on. Luckily, I'm joined by accredited sex and relationship therapist, Kate Campbell. Hello, Mum. Hello, Diggs. So we're going to have a definition from our brilliant interviewee a little later on. But just for now, Mum, what is polyamory or non-monogamy? So what it says, really, non-monogamous relationships where you've got more than one partner. So you might have one special partner and others, or you might have a sort of hierarchy of partners. There's all sorts of different ways of doing it, which Magdalena will discuss with us. But what's mm. I think what's really important is that this is not the same as an affair. It's a relationship where everybody knows what's going on. There's no secrecy or that there shouldn't be any secrecy. Yeah. Yeah. And a monogamous couple or monogamy is the opposite. It's like you have one partner and that's that. Yeah, most people go in for serial monogamy, don't they? One partner, then another partner, then another partner, then another partner, rather than than um, several all at once. So with polyamory, as I say, there's lots of technical language to get to grips with, and Magdalena uses a lot. So here are some of them. What's what's a formation? Well, that's any any kind of group of polyamorous people. So quite often there would be four or more mm. um, in this in the same kind of kind of group. So they could be all having sex together or one of them having sex with another one. And another one and another one at separate and times. And another one and another right. one. Yeah, yeah. At separate times. Yeah. So it's like a network, a sex yeah, network. Yeah, like a like yes. And a dyad. Two, two a couple. Yes. And so a dyad is like, yeah, the relationship between two, two people. people. Yeah. yeah. And a triad. Three. There you go. Or a thruple. But the, the a, a triad is also made up of three dyads because the dyad refers to the relationship between two people. Yeah. And another one as well, it's symbiosis. Now, obviously, that means something in, I'm sure, like chemistry or something. But that's not the lesson we're doing today. Symbiosis. What does that mean in the sexy relationship term? So this is what happens when the people involved create a kind of relationship that they are comfortable with, where it's balanced in the way they want it to be, where it's connected in the way they want it to be. So it's something that has been worked at to be achieved. Mm. And compersion is another one that Magdalena talks about in the podcast. And she actually gives her own description or explanation of what that is herself. But basically, compersion is something that you don't have to be polyamorous to feel it. You've got to be in a relationship with someone or, you know, have a relationship with someone. And it's that feeling of 
not just acceptance or tolerance, but joy and happiness in seeing someone else being happy, doing something else with someone else, almost like the opposite of jealousy, actively Mm. enjoying them being happy, even though you might not be involved. And that's something that a lot of polyamorous people sort of strive for. And this one is very specific to Magdalena, in which she talks about the clinical reality of things. And it's because she is a therapist and she sees a lot of these couples and throuples and formations, mm-hmm. etc., and or just people on their own. And she's, she mentions the clinical reality of things. And when she mentions the clinical reality, that just means when someone is sat opposite her in the therapy chair. Talking about what's going on for them exactly right exactly right and so i think that's our primer yay i think we're ready Ooh, ready to go <laughs> exactly so let's hear she's with us now sex therapist clinical psychologist and author dr magdalena j fossey thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for people at home that, that don't maybe know can you explain in your own words what you do and and, and how you came to do it So uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, which implies that first and foremost, I work with individuals and I'm a couples therapist. So I work with relationships and I think I work with individuals and couples in equal measures. And by couples, I don't necessarily mean that it's only monogamous couples. It's couples of all sorts. And I'm also a certified sex therapist, which means that my main focus of therapy is relationships and intimacy and sexuality. And because of my particular interest in polyamory and non-monogamy, the vast majority of referrals are from people who are considering uh, alternatives to monogamy. But it's equally important to emphasize that I work with people who are in monogamous relationships. For me, the most important thing is the quality of the relationship, not the format. The format doesn't define the quality. Just in case there's anyone that doesn't know, what is polyamory or non-monogamy? Is there a difference between the two? That's a great question. So polyamory is a made-up word, which consists of two elements, poly meaning multiple and amor meaning love. So multiple love and implies the possibility to be sexually and romantically involved with more than one person. Non-monogamy implies sexual relationships with other people. So non-monogamy can be seen as an umbrella term uh, under which polyamory is one of the ways of practicing non-monogamy. But just like with non-monogamy, there may be so many different presentations, so many different formats, from swinging to um, polyfidelity, which is a form of polyamory within a group of people where they practice being sexually involved with one another, but nobody outside of the group. So these terms are often used interchangeably. So I, you know, I differentiate, but I also specify uh, or talk to people how they want mm. to be called. And so when your clients come to you, polyamorous or non-monogamous, what are they usually looking for? So they are coming to me for relational help. So it's also like I want to acknowledge up front that who I see and then what I'm seeing in terms of relational difficulty is not necessarily a reflection of polyamory or non-monogamy on the overall because I see people in pain. So when they make their way to my office, they are already struggling with something. It's also true that many of the people that I have worked with over the years, they come to the world of polyamory thinking that they are prepared. They typically say that they've read books about uh, polyamory, they follow blogs, they listen to podcasts, and they concluded that's who they are. Then the second step is that they come to my office and then they talk about, like, we thought we were so well prepared. And here we are in pain and we don't know what to do. What sort of thing tends to um, prompt people to start thinking about polyamory or non-monogamy in the first place? 
going back to like how polyamory means multiple loves, it's interesting in itself that the term doesn't involve sexuality. But again, <laughs> what prompts most people in my experience is a recognition within themselves that they have a capacity or the desire to be involved sexually with more than one person. So it usually starts with sexual interest and then and a hope that their relationship can contain and tolerate more than one sexual liaison. But also then with hope that maybe it can be more than an acceptance of more open sexual boundaries that it can also accommodate for loving romantic feelings. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's true is that I haven't heard anyone so far say that, you know, I'm interested in more love in my life, so I want our to open up our relationship. Mm. People are interested in more love. They find a way to incorporate more love. So it can be love deciding to have children or another child, inviting more friends to their lives and then uh, strengthening bonds in the relationship or in the family of origin or having pets. So love Mm. is not necessarily a conflict per se. It can become a conflict when it becomes a romantic entanglement with somebody else and it starts to represent a threat to the existing relationship. Ah, So do people ever think, oh, Here's an idea, another partner, when they get a bit bored with their sexual relationship? Yes. Ah. Very often the case. Or if they identify as something else than straight or gay, and actually internally they are feeling, no, 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 that's not who I am. I want to have space for multiple relationships. And if they can be space for a different and normative sexual exploration, that's where I belong. That's what I want. So I, I want to give a little bit of space to what you said before, is that you see more people who are, like you said, you use a great phrase, in pain. And that's the case with both of your professions, I guess. Like when you do see relationships, that's when they're in struggle. What do polyamorous relationships that are flourishing, that are positive, what do they look like? Well, that's, that's another terrific question. Because it's also a question in what stage of the relationship they are. It's very easy for relationships to appear flourishing when they are in the early stage of symbiosis or the honeymoon. Or to use polyamorous terminology when they are in a new relationship energy or NRE. So those relationships look flourishing. All relationships go through stages of development. And it doesn't matter whether we are talking about monogamous relationships or non-monogamous relationships. Any long-term relationships goes through certain stages of development. So starting with the stage of symbiosis, falling in love, the honeymoon, and then going through the stage of differentiation. The differentiation implying like, I'm different than you are, and can our relationship tolerate the difference? And the stage of practicing, like, can our different ways of being in this world coexist? Can we be individuals and be together? And then the stage of, which is called, often referred to as reproachment, so the stage in which the differences actually are not as important, they are recognized, but they are appreciated because that creates something different. And the final stage that not all couples achieve, which is the stage of harmony. So the harmony where the recognition of that we are stronger together than alone is the dominant field. So again, now going back to it's like, are we talking about monogamy or non-monogamy? And then how the flourishing relationship exists? Yes, they, if they are flourishing, they've already came to the place of recognizing our differences are our strength. And we also are stronger together than alone. So it's like if the relationship can tolerate and accommodate for differences and doing it successfully, that's the model of flourishing. 
So if there is a polyamorous formation, who comes to my office, it's usually a diet, whichever, like whether it's a diet of the primary partners or whether it's a diet of a partner, one partner who is primary with somebody else, but it's coming with another person to therapy. So it's still the focus is on the diet, on the quality of this relationship, and can this relationship flourish? Mm-hmm. So you'd get the impression from reading some of the literature that they're able to eliminate jealousy from the relationships. Yeah. Is it as easy as that? No. <laughs> ah. That's that's one of my pet peeves, is that <laughs> as valuable as all the writings on polyamory are, and because they can help people to discern, like, is it something for me or not? In my mind, they also oversimplify the picture about how to deal with jealousy. So the, the, there is the message, a very clear message about polyamory being a complex experience. It's not one emotion, but many. And uh, that's absolute truth. So it's uh, jealousy consists of feelings of sadness, anger, envy, of a sense of insecurity, and, and many other feelings of guilt or shame. So that all goes into jealousy. However, jealousy is not one person's emotion. Jealousy it's in response to relational threat so that's where when the focus becomes on like it's on you as a person to deal with your jealous feelings that approach overlooks the reality of jealousy being a complex relational experience Uh so it's also it brings it back to like how is the relationship handling jealousy what is the other partner doing to make jealousy less prevalent So again, it's not uh, taking the responsibility away from the individual. But in my mind, the emphasis should be again on what's happening relationally and and individually. Right. So how is the other partner helping? Yeah, or not helping. So is is that something that people come to see you about a lot? Is that a, a, because I would imagine that would be a big issue. Yeah, absolutely. And also with compression. Compression implies being able to find the joy in seeing one's partner having fun with somebody else. And in the polyamorous world, it's emphasized that fun with somebody else doesn't have to be of sexual nature. It can be more broadly understood. But so many people, when they read about compression, they become really excited. Mm. On the one hand, they think like, really, is that possible? And on the other hand, they think like, oh, it's something that I need to aspire for. So the world of polyamory actually creates a different set of pressures expressed by like, I'm not doing polyamory right. Because if I was doing it right, I would be feeling compression. But again, the question is watching one's partner having fun with somebody else because they are engaging in some activity that doesn't feel threatening. Is that compression? Or is compression something that were actually implies working over something that is difficult for an individual to embrace and tolerate and reach this higher level of acceptance. The question is again, over and over again, if it's really challenging for you as an individual and for the relationship, because it feels like a threat, what can be done to overcome these feelings? And is it even a state that it's achievable? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I would have thought it's not just having fun with somebody else. It's the activities, the particular activities they're involved in, like going to the same restaurants or maybe being interested in extreme sports that worry the primary partner or something like that. And it must be a minefield trying to get your head around it and manage all of that sort of thing. Yeah. So going back to jealousy, so from jealousy, and compression being perceived as the opposite of jealousy. Mm. I look at them as two different phenomena. 
One is like it's jealousy. It's not always a bad thing. Jealousy has a bad reputation. Jealousy is a signal that there is something in the relationship that feels off, that it's threatening. So jealousy can be also a signal that, wait a moment, we need to refocus on what's happening for us, how to strengthen the relationship. Vice versa, when people don't feel compassion, it doesn't mean that they are not giving the relationship the attention that it deserves. It might mean that they are acknowledging, you know, this is not easy for me. It doesn't mean that I cannot continue striving and doing my best in this relationship. Yeah. And do you think there are different times in people's lives when it might be harder to have your partner seeing somebody else? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Again, thinking about what's polyamory and how does it play out? It's always a question as well, like, which generation are we talking about? Mm. So like, for you, it's a very different reality than for somebody who is let's say in their 40s and thinking or uh, being introduced to polyamory and now realizing, oh, I think that's, I'm really interested in it. So let's say it's a couple in their 40s and now they think polyamory is intriguing. They want to explore it. And if it happens to be a couple where both partners had very little sexual experience. So there is also this sense of like, wait a moment, we are middle-aged. There is not much time left. But we still are curious. We still want to explore who we are. And then to be, you know, it's life is not over. On the contrary, life is in, the, in its fullness. But mm. is, is it all there is? So that's, enough, that's a very different scenario. And then very different approach to different relational options and sexual options. So again, it's like it's such a complex world, which is like where in which to apply one definition and say that's what it is. In my mind, it's really difficult or actually almost impossible. Yeah, But it's interesting that you mentioned them maybe being in their 40s because something that you said before, Mum, was that a lot of the polyamorous clients that you've seen are people who are... Over 60. Yeah. Is that something that you've seen as well, Magdalena? Absolutely. And I'm actually, since you mentioned it, I was also curious because what I see is the reality in the US. That's where my Mm. clients come from. And I assume it's similar for you in Great Britain, but I don't know. Yeah, well, it's interesting because yes, that there is also a lot of polyamory amongst younger people. I mean, it seems very doable, very acceptable in the gay community and Mm -hmm. pansexual community. But but more more problematic for straight cis couples, really. And as you said, with the older, the much older, there are more of those things. Do you think this is all right? I'm widowed. I don't want to leave my home. I want to keep my home for my children. I don't want to set up a new home. I have multiple friends and have lots of relationships. And they seem to manage it really well. And there seems to be much less sense of jealousy in the older people. What there is instead is guilt about doing something that goes against what they've been brought up to believe in. Yes. And also I'm thinking about uh, the guilt feeling might be there, but it also might be a recognition that once more at a different stage in life, different needs might dominate. So it might be, let's say, if it's another kind of imbalance in the relationship, like one of the partners is, let's say, not interested in continuing sexual intimacy for medical reasons, some other reasons. It doesn't mean that sex is gone out of the relationship or desire for intimate connection. And again, that's a separate part. It's like when we talk about sex, it implies a mutual understanding of what sex means. Sex is not the same thing for everyone. No. Sex is much more than the penetrative sex, which is how most people think about still. So that's that's another conversation. What, what do people mean by sex? What do people mean by intimacy? 
Yeah. And it changes at different times in life. I mean, sometimes people are more into it than others. And we see lots of menopausal women, for instance, who say, oh, well, I'm menopausal, therefore, you know, I'm going to go off sex. But they're not off sex. What they're off is feeling really sweaty and uh, and uncomfortable. And it doesn't feel very sexy when you're feeling like that. And it's the perimenopausal symptoms that have mm-hmm. put them off sex, not their libido. Their libido is intact, yeah. but mm-hmm. it's misread and it causes all sorts of problems. So this is also true. We spend practically every podcast saying sex isn't yeah. just about penetration mm-hmm. every yeah, time. Absolutely. And that's an important message because going back to your, the premise of your podcast, The real sex education, sex is so much more than penetration. So much more, so much more. And, you know, there could be different kinds of really amazing sex with different partners. Mm -hmm. So if, if, say, you did have somebody who was ill, lots of cuddles and sensuality and eroticism might be really important, but with no penetration and maybe no orgasm, maybe not very much naked touch, but but some maybe, who knows? But then with another partner, there might be lots of penetration and lots of, lots of swinging from the chandeliers and a very different experience but it's all brilliant sex mm-hmm. and, and is, is perhaps that one of the draws of polyamory is that you can sort of find partners who fit in all of them if one partner doesn't do all of those things i suppose that way is treating people like sort of i don't know like a box ticking exercise but is that one of the pro- the, the the pros of it is that you can find people that fit all of your different wants and needs sexually in the ideal world yes It's like ticking off the box. There is nobody who can meet all of your needs. The question goes back to like, is it creating a conflict? So let's say again, two people, a couple, and then in which person loves reading books and the other person loves going to spectator sports. Is it a conflict or is it something that they are able to manage with friends who have similar interests? And then when it comes to like to relationship and sexuality and intimacy, you know, I have different interests. So let's say now it's it's a couple in which one person is interested in kink. Now, it's a different question. What kind of king? Because a king which involves having the blindfold on, it's very different from king in which involves going to dungeons and exploring things that for somebody else can feel threatening. So it might be ticking off the box or it might, and the relationship might tolerate, or it might actually rep- represent a relational threat. I don't know who you are, what you are doing, and it feels like you are doing it to me because you want something that I cannot tolerate. It feels too dangerous to risk it. So you feel dangerous to me. So both can be true. Ticking off the box, or it can also be true that it becomes a, a conflict in the relationship that a couple may or may not be able to resolve. And is it, it, I mean, I guess with all these things, is just really good, thorough communication the best way to deal with those sorts of conflicts? Communication is the key. But communication alone doesn't solve the problem. What's happening in the relationship in the present is affected by what people experienced in the the past, in their families of origin, in their previous relationships. And all of these things can affect what's happening in the moment. So being able to openly and honestly communicate, which is one of the tenets of polyamory, openness, honesty, and transparency, all of them are building blocks. But also being able to to engage with the difficult parts of one's uh, personality or one's past, it's relevant. And making space for that rather than thinking that, we're communicating well because we're problem solving. Relationships are not all about problem solving. They are also about making space for different emotional experiences. Mm-hmm. 
do you think more people are becoming non-monogamous? And and do you think? I mean, some people said it's the future. Do you agree with that? I'm really curious to to see how it unfolds because it's also um, back to the generational differences for uh, people your generation, uh, Dick, and then for people even younger it became such a household name. So they don't even know who they are, but they are already talking about being polyamorous. So if a 14-year-old talks about like, I'm poly, and they have barely experienced anything in the world in terms of uh, intimacy, sexuality, and then relationships. So, so it's really hard to say how this perception of relationship will, um, of themselves in the, in the world, how it will continue down the line. And uh, looking back at history, we are continuously evolving as, as species. But also the struggle between the original question, a species, are we monogamous, are we not? Even that doesn't have a straightforward answer because there is no indicator of a species being monogamous. And yet monogamy has existed culturally for millennia. And also it was never like in a strict format because every culture on the earth has found a way to work around monogamy. You know, we are incredibly adaptable. And then moving forward, probably non-monogamy will be accepted as uh, part of, uh, of our future. And there is also uh, the question about, like, you know, when people are in the stage of forming a relationship and wanting something more lasting, how would that concept of non-monogamy work for them? So that's the big unknown. And how will we regroup? How the world is changing and how will we regroup around that? I mean, I think I can see it amongst my friends and peers now and people my age. I mean, there's obviously dating apps and people will, you know, they'll go on a few dates. They might sleep around a lot. That in in a way is a form of sort of polyamory just because mm-hmm. one of the big questions you're asked now, if, if you say, oh, I'm seeing someone, people next will ask you, my age, they'll say, oh, are you guys exclusive? Mm-hmm. So it's the idea that you could be seeing someone. But at the moment, even amongst my age group, it's like, you're not instantly assuming that the person that you're seeing is definitely your primary partner and your exclusive. There could still be other people that you're seeing and other people that you're sleeping with. So I think, you know, like you said, it's, it's interesting how I think it's already unfolding in front of our eyes and it could well be the future. Yeah. Because the language is changing. So people might not talking about being monogamous, but they are talking about exclusive. Mm-hmm. And that's still relevant and important because that indicates the seriousness of the relationship. Are we exclusive? We are moving to the next stage. If there is somebody listening to this who might be thinking before, oh, it's not just a crush. I do think I am I am poly. Like, how do they proceed? What do they do? <laughs> You're asking <laughs> <laughs> such a big question. Oh, no. Oh, dear. I'm so sorry. No, no, well, no, that's, no, that's terrific. I would say, actually, go to therapy. Absolutely. Go seek help. Go to therapy. Make space for your own growth and exploration. Because we think, most people think or assume they know who they are. We really don't. And without having a mirror, without having a space in which you can reflect, and a space which is non-judgmental, which is open, and then in which your individuality can be embraced, it's really hard to get to know oneself. We don't exist in vacuum. We need mirrors. Other people are mirrors. So again, who you are with, like in terms of your partners and friends, is our mirrors. Who your family is, our mirrors. Therapy is a neutral space, neutral in a sense that the therapy, it doesn't mean that the therapist doesn't have any preconceived ideas about the world. Therapists have their own biases too, but it's finding a good match with the therapist in which you can actually deeply dig in and who you are and then come back to the question like, is this true for me? That would be my 
advice at the end. I think that's I think that's wonderful advice, and it, yeah, it's really struck home. Magdalena, thank you so so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much as well. It was a delight. What a wonderful initiative! Oh, that's so kind. That's so kind. Thank you. It's wonderful to meet you. Bye bye. It's the mailbag. Ten k queries. Two podcasts at hatch.com. It's the mailbag. Ten k queries. Podcast at hatchick with two t's. Hello there. I have a query for Kate. I would like to know when the real sex education mailbag starts. Thank you so much to Dr. Magdalena J. Fossey for speaking with us. You can find her at drfossey.com. That's D-R-F-O-S-S-E.com. And you can buy her book, The Many Faces of Polyamory, Longing and Belonging in Concurrent Relationships, there as well. We'll put both these in the show notes, as well as Mum's blog that goes along with this episode and tells you a little bit more detail about what we discussed today. And also it has a wider reading, listening and watching list that includes a polyamory glossary. So if you enjoyed you know, learning all the words at the beginning, you can impress all the romantic partners in your life by knowing exactly what terms to use to refer to them by. Right, Mum, it's time to open up our mailbag and see what questions our listeners have for you to answer. If you'd like Mum, an accredited sexual relationship therapist, to answer your questions, you can send them in via email, podcast.com, or DM us on Instagram. We're at Real Sex Ed Pod. Question one today comes from Anonymous, who says, I was having sex with my boyfriend and he pulled out his penis and my vagina came out. I screamed and pushed it back in and it's been fine since, but I'm really scared. Help. It sounds like a prolapse. Mm. So when other organs like the bladder or the rectum and of course the womb are pressing heavily down onto the vagina, then it is pushed forwards. And so you will quite often see the uterus, the womb, to appear at the opening to the vagina when it's been pushed mm-hmm. down. But where you've got a lot of pushing, then parts of the vagina can be pushed forwards. And that's probably what she saw. But I mean, it doesn't happen so often during sex because when you're aroused during sex, normally the womb moves backwards during sex. And, and normally you, you don't actually have that problem at that time. So mm. I would definitely get that checked out by a doctor. Prolapses most commonly happen after childbirth, which is why you're encouraged to do pelvic floor exercises. So guys and gals, please do your pelvic floor exercises. It's really, really important. And actually it's really important anyway, because it stops you from becoming incontinent and it can really, really enhance your sexual functioning. I mean, like lots of people say they can have more orgasms, they can control orgasms, they're more intense. I mean, mm. you know, it varies from person to person, obviously, but there's definitely good reasons for pelvic floor exercises. And you stopping your vagina from falling out is absolutely one of them. I really couldn't quite believe my eyes when I read this. And to know that it's possible is is terrifying. Well, so- it isn't really possible. What's What it means is that a part of the pelvic floor has been pushed forward and it's right, and right. potentially there was a full rectum behind it that was pushing it forward. So it's not falling out. I mean, it isn't actually falling out, yeah. but it, yeah. it, um, their, their turn of phrase is, I think, what's frightened me. Yeah. The turn of phrase is quite comical, but 
um, well, it's obviously not comical to them. It's obviously no. very serious. But and it is very serious and you should go to the doctor. Yes, but you've mentioned the pelvic floor exercises. Is this the famous Kegels? That's the ones, yeah. So how the hell do we do our Kegels then? Well, if you go to the loo and you stop the flow, those are the muscles when you stop. Those are the muscles that you want to exercise. So don't keep mm. doing that or you'll get a urine infection. But you can just do it once, not if you're pregnant, but you can do it once if you're unpregnant. So what? Whilst you're peeing, you then clench, stop, and then start again. Yeah, so that, so then you know that's the muscles. So what you want to mm. do is do that, do the clenching quickly, do lots of quick clenches, say 10 quick clenches, and then one where you hold for 10, and then maybe do mm. five where you hold for 10, and then do 10 quick clenches again. Are you doing them? You look as if you're doing, doing them. You're it, doing I'm them. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> Was it that obvious? Yeah. It's quite hard. It is quite hard. hard. Really quick. How, how hard? How hard? How quick do you really, have to do Really, 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 get doing really, really quick. Really, really quick. Well, I can't do that that really, quick. Really this quick. is insane. I could do about one. Yeah, I know. But once you get used to it, you can do them really, really quick. I can't do it that quick. Right. If you're climaxing and you do them, sometimes you can delay your climax or you can make it happen. If it's slow, you can wow. make it, guys, you can make your climax come by doing this. And you can also make your climax more intense if you get good at this. Apparently, I can't actually vouch for it obviously, because I'm lacking some parts, but apparently that's supposed to work. And, <laughs> and certainly... To be real, I was like, what is she talking about? What is she lacking? <laughs> right, got it. And I got mean, that. some women can climax just by doing Kegels. Oh, my word. Yeah. I mean, you know, for a, a, little, a little tip is, if you have just climaxed and you're about to be penetrated, that's a really mm. good time to start doing your Kegels because penetration straight after a climax, you can then control further orgasms with your Kegels. So you can have more orgasms as you're penetrated. That That's a really good way of doing it. Well, that sounds like a superpower. So go away and try that one at home. Yeah. Here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> Fantastic. So Anonymous, go to the doctor, get that checked out. And everyone else, and probably you anyway, do your Kegel muscles. Mm. Our next question is from Alex, who says, I am straight, but I like watching gay porn. I have been thinking about being with men more and more recently. I'm really confused. Well, is Alex a man? This is what I was thinking. Uh, but but I, I imagine Alex is a man because it's like I'm straight I've been thinking about being with men more and more recently but then again that could just be like I'm du- like Alex the girl being like I'm doubling down on being straight yeah yeah exactly I think Alex is a guy right because there's a difference in the way people tend to perceive erotica and porn so women are more likely to identify with the characters I mean so it doesn't matter who they are they will identify with them so they could identify as straight but be really turned on watching men or women mm. having sex together because they identify with their experience and so they get turned on by that yeah whereas men tend to be more detached and they're not aroused by the person if you like they're aroused by what they're seeing so women what is hot is the person's experience whereas mm. what is hot for men is the person's behavior Right. Hey, that's good. But either way, it doesn't mean that because you appreciate non-straight sex that you are not straight. Mm. I mean, it might do. It might It might be a, the first signs, but it doesn't need to be. It's likely that you're just appreciating the scene. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I, I was just about to say, I, I think I've said it before in the podcast. I have, um, they've all been 
friends of mine who are girls who they've said to me before they're like i identify as straight but i've watched lesbian porn yeah. and i really enjoy it and again it's exactly what you say they're like i i'm not like oh this lesbian scene or whatever is really really exciting mm. it's like i identify with the pleasure they're receiving and like the situation that's literally yeah. what they've said so you're exactly it, spot yeah. on so it could be, be exactly the same that's happening here however at the same time it could also be like you say the first signs that maybe there is something else going on. The thing is, and what I would say if that's the case, is, is I think particularly for men, and in, for a lot of people, but there's, there's this sort of internalised homophobia going on. And I think as soon as you start being like, oh, well, that could be gay or whatever, you're just putting labels on it. Just try your best. Just, if you're enjoying something, keep on enjoying yeah. it. Don't put too much thought into it. Don't try and be like, oh, does this mean I have to put this label on now? Yeah, but it's a personal experience. That's the thing. And I think, with you know, when we talk about fantasy, which we have done a few times where we've said that, what's going on in your head is in your head. Um, what's mm. in your head stays in your head. Um, and yeah. a lot of women have rape fantasies. That mm. does not mean they want to be raped at all. Mm. And, and, you know, there, there are some arguments that when something is bothering you, you will turn it into a story that helps you to master it. Mm. And so it could well be that, you, you know, that's, that's what's going on for Alex, but it could also just be, he thinks, you, you know, it's, it's a hot fantasy. It's just a fantasy. It doesn't mean anything else, but if it did mean something else, so what? I think that's it. I think regardless of what's going on here, I think, you're really confused. I think don't be confused. Just accept these things as they come. You cannot help your thoughts. You can't help what turns you on. Just keep enjoying yourself. If you're enjoying watching gay porn, you literally say here, but I like watching gay porn. Keep doing it. You know, there are all sorts of reasons why people like things as well. And if something is a little bit taboo, then that might be why. I mean, if if you mm. feel, well, I shouldn't really be doing this. Woo-hoo. That might be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Alex yeah. does that every time he goes, woohoo, whenever. <laughs> yeah. He's like, ooh, I'm straight, but I'm watching gay porn. I shouldn't be really to be doing this. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's how it goes. Amazing. Sorry, Alex. Sorry, Alex. <laughs> Keep at it, though. Keep at it. Oh, well, what fun. I can't believe it. What fun. That is about it for this episode. And, Mum, would you believe it? That is it for this series. No. Series three of the podcast. No, yeah. you're kidding me. That came round really up, fast. Down. I know, I know. So fast. So oh, fast. Oh, no. And so it's it's about that time of the series where we have to say thank you so much um, to everyone, to Hattrick Productions, for hosting us for another series. We really appreciate it. Claire, in particular, thank you so much. You're the best. Mum, as I said already, it's been another wild ride. Yeah. Um, you're a constant source of information <laughs> with incredible insight, uh, such as saying that one way toxic masculinity shows itself in men is, is by them feeling like they can't eat quiche. Or the fact that when you said to that lady who was like, oh, I don't want my daughter to have her boyfriend around to stay. She's only a teenager. You were like, don't worry, they'll be playing Minecraft. <laughs> I didn't um, say that. This is a good thing. Listeners, you can go and check the tape, see what she said, see if I'm being harsh. You, you, the thing is, you started saying that and I thought, oh, he's saying something really nice. He's saying, <laughs> he's saying I know what I'm talking about and all you're doing is taking the mickey. <laughs> no, come on, let's be real. You are you are a resident sex and relationship therapist you are our sex expert you know what you're talking about i mean those are those questions that you just answered that's exactly right so honestly though it has been it's been great fun it has been really good fun uh, it has been really good fun i've had i've had a blast Diggs. thank you so much and last but certainly not least 
thank you guys for listening. Absolutely. We wouldn't be here without you. And I don't like to pick favourite children. I'll leave that to mum. But listen, just know that if you were my child, you would be the favourite. Um, <laughs> and I'd buy you a 99 with a flake in it. And all the other, all my other children would just get a 99. No flake. All right. It takes, it's not a 99 without a flake. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I know that because I'm your favourite child. <laughs> Can't you get a 99? No. With no the flake? whole point is 99 has a flake in it. Otherwise, it's just a, it's just a cornet, isn't it? Well, get this, right? Do you know what's even darker? Is I would buy them all 99 flakes and then take out the flakes. What? To my lesser favourite children. But to the people listening, I'd keep the flake in. So all the other kids who don't listen to the podcast, they just watch on as dad ruthlessly took their flakes out of their ice creams. Right. This is not to be recommended at home, listeners. <laughs> It's child abuse. Yeah. If, if if this does happen, I have a fantastic therapist that I can refer your children to, <laughs> uh, which is good. Guys, stay subscribed. Stay following because we'll see you there for some more real sex education. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Campbell. The show is produced by Diggory Waite and the executive producer is Claire Broughton. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But yes, Diggory does wish his mother was played by Gillian Anderson.